Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And for the next two hours on 855 Analog, 3CR, digital, or if you prefer online, streaming or podcast at 3cr.org.au. Today we look at food and food security with Savannah Scupsy. Tour around the Pacific with Nick McClellan. Preparations for war with Dr. Alison Bronowski. And will there be peace in Yemen with Dr. Tim Anderson? But as always, Mr. Kevin Healy, he has had a week. A week, Jan, when as the US of the UN of the US of the world pursued its relentless extradition of true blue Aussie Julian Assange for exposing US of war crimes, the US of displayed its renowned competence and watertight security by managing to release thousands of top secret security documents revealing what it really thinks about its very, very, very close friends who incidentally are their very, very, very closest friend when some government member of that country makes the ritual visit to kowtow and lick boots. In fairness, with True Blue Aussie, it generally manages to work out this is the one down under, not the one next to another very, very close friend, Germany. Uh, Well, apart from George W. Bash, the workers, but then he didn't have a clue what it really thinks, so we assumed some giant mine security guru last heard gasping, oops, shit, I shouldn't have hit that goddamn key, will, like Assange, now be facing 175 years in the slammer. The US, I'm sure as hell, likes to take no risks on longevity, doesn't it? Although they've arrested some hard-right ideologue working for the military. Imagine that, a hard-right ideologue working for the military. And given it revealed secret information about its very, very, very close friend Ukraine's war machine, naturally Ukraine will seek to extradite the security idiot responsible, which the US of couldn't possibly oppose. Well, couldn't possibly oppose without dropping its case against Julian Assange. So it comes down to whether the accused does 175 years in a US of or Ukrainian slammer. In the satire can't compete department, as all this came out after eons expressing on behalf of the whole world, which it represents, the whole liberty, freedom and democracy world, repugnance that evil China is spying on all of us, a US of spokesperson dismissed criticism with, it's not serious. Everyone knows that everyone spies on everyone else. What? The US of spies on people? On everyone else? But a bit of a dilemma facing True Blue Aussie, one of the everyone else's. See, Socialist Party policy commits the government to signing the UN of the US of the UN of the World Treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which we know was initiated in True Blue Aussie and won a Nobel Peace Prize. Described, that is, signing it by Big Supremo Anthony Albeguzzi as a labour at its best. But the US of has ordered, or sorry, made clear to its very, very, very close friends they should not sign a treaty banning nuclear weapons because, and here's logic run riot, direct quote, it would undermine peace and security. Let's try that again. Banning weapons that could destroy the planet before climate change does the job threatens peace and security. 
and signing the treaty would prohibit nuclear-armed U.S. of air and sea-trained killer protectors of liberty, freedom and democracy from landing in or being based in Trublawasi. And wouldn't that be a security disaster? No nuclear targets in Trublawasi. A threat to the Forker steel. So what a dilemma for the socialist government. And is anyone prepared to bet on which side the super-courageous, independent-thinking, tongues-covered-with-US-of-boot-poly-socialists will come down, or, more pertinently, prepared to bet they'll sign the treaty? Ukraine's plea for lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy to condemn Russia's threat to station nuclear weapons in Belarus met with resounding silence from its NATO neighbours which surround Russia and a very mooted response from the bastion of liberty, freedom and, as Ukraine was reminded that uh, just a small barrier to criticising evil Russia, because good, good, good US of has nuclear weapons all over Europe pointing at we-know-who. Ditto as Ukraine et al, in this case, attacked the hypocrisy of Russia chairing the UN of Security Council. Its case diluted a fair bit, mainly because long-haired commie greeny goody-goodies pointed out that the US of chaired the council as it was illegally invading, slaughtering and destroying in Vietnam, and both the US of and Her Most Gracious Majesty's country, home country, chaired same while illegally invading, slaughtering and destroying in Iraq and Afghanistan, which took a bit of the stuffing out of the attack. The, oh shit, oops, wrong goddamn key leak, well, more deluge, included the US of declaring the UN of Supremo Guterres as a person of interest, thus soft on the bad guys, and worse, taking the threat of climate change if there is such a thing seriously. This... Yeah, this uh, threat to international peace and freedom seems to have forgotten he works for the UN of the US of. He's forgotten the US of bit and he'd better learn quickly or else. Uh, are you threatening him? Of course not. Just a bit of advice he'd be advised to heed. The peace-loving US of never, never threatens anyone and would never threaten anyone. Just in case there is such a thing as climate change, two highly responsible bodies, the Clean Energy Investor Group and the Investor Group on Climate Change, not sure what the difference is, iterated their commitment to renewable energy with just one proviso. They shouldn't have to foot the bill. State and federal governments can stimulate new renewable energy sources, but they should avoid owning generation assets. They showed their commitment to socialism funding, capitalism owning. Governments can provide research and development funding, support demonstration projects, and provide subsidies and other incentives. Aren't we filled with admiration every time we see the caring business class express its big-heartedness? The Socialist Emission Reduction Scheme is so effective, it has been applauded by much of the pollution industry. Although, <clears throat> while the cement industry applauds it, it says it must be exempt because it would be too impractical and costly not to be exempt. And thank goodness the government has agreed. 
On the eve of alternative, and as we contemplate a US of presidential candidate campaigning from a prison cell, the only other person to campaign from prison was, of course, a commie socialist, Eugene Debs in 1920, who said, I thank the capitalist masters for putting me here. They know where I belong under their criminal and corrupting system. It is the only compliment they could pay me. What treason, what ingratitude, what evil. But it gets worse. He was jailed for opposing the war, denouncing anti-war activists being arrested by the junkers of Wall Street, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. Any wonder he was charged with sedition, the same charge levelled at Julian Assange, by the way. Oh, and just in case we're wondering, strangely enough, he didn't win. And thank goodness when we read the sensible philosophical truths revealed about commie socialist evil by Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist bolt through the head. This week outing indigenous academic Marcia Langston as a former communist and informing us Marxists don't treat people as individuals. They divide us into faceless members of a class. That lets them demonize enemies and crush them like insects. Something capitalism would never do. Thank God for benign capitalism. <clears throat> How would ignorant people gather important knowledge without great thinkers, great purveyors of truth, like bolt through the head? Oh, of course, her Marxist background is all the more reason not to support the voice. No, no, no. And hasn't caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo Constable Peter Duffer's decision in Canberra to oppose a voice making decisions in Canberra, like, you know, Canberra, worked a treat. Well, well apart from his strong leadership aimed at unity disintegrating around him, but one of our... Wisest Trubler was, has reinforced Pete's no, 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 like you know, no, no, by urging the supporters of a yes vote to be nice. Yes, former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, is concerned those out-of-control, long-haired, greeny, commie radicals voting yes will cause disruption and say nasty things, hurtful things about the couth gentle, sophisticated, deep thinkers who know white true blue should not recognise the tyrannilious non-people. And who could be more sophisticated than Constable Duffer? Not suggesting the caring business class hayseed and sheepshit coalition is even slightly conservative as the Victorian caring business class lot are about as united as Pete's lot is over the voice. With a move to overthrow State President Greg Mora Bellicosa, former big-time trained killer, partner of that former deeply respected and loved MP Sophie, appointed by another former big supremo scummo as a neutral arbiter of the fair work Trubler was, he no longer worked choices, just looks like a commission. A move to replace him because he's not conservative enough. Let's try that one again. The caring business class party says Greg, and by inference Sophie Morabella Cosa, is stroke R, not conservative enough. Doesn't that say heaps? And won't it do wonders for their inelectability? 
And my word, they are quick learners, and it couldn't happen, could it, to a nicer bunch. Finally, while they know recognising the Terranilius non-people as people would be racist and divisive, thank goodness there is one arena where Terranilius non-people can be recognised as non-people people when they run out on a footing field and can be told they have no right to act like people, go back to where you came from, uh, which shows a slight ignorance of history, no right, go back, especially if they're on the other team and as usual are starring and making a mess of your team. We have to wonder what the racists abusing Indigenous players think of the Indigenous stars in their own team, although obviously logical thinking escapes them. Good afternoon. And more of Kevin Hilly tomorrow morning with City Limits at 9am. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 855am. Savannah Sapsky is obsessed, that's her word, about food. But not in the way many people are passionate about food, but food and justice. And that's the topic for today. Savannah is a recent graduate from the William Angus Institute, as ducks from the Bachelor of Food Studies degree. I spoke with her last week and we began by talking about that obsession, where it came from. One of my parents was born in Poland uh, and migrated when they were around 25 years old. So I've grown up, you know, with a different cultural background and eating traditional cultural food. We would have the Christmas Eve dinner, which is called Vigilia in Polish, where we would hand make dumplings and uh, do the whole 12 course meal. I suppose that was just like a, a mainstay in the in the life growing up. And my mom, who maybe, you know, isn't as much of a chef or a cook as I am, but she was really interested in food as well. So she completed her PhD while I was growing up, and that was actually about women in kitchens. She looked at kitchen design in the 50s. And she's, you know, worked, I guess, like on a more academic level. And I can remember always thinking, like, I'm never going to be like my mom and work in universities because it just seems so hard. But, like, here I am kind of doing exactly the same thing she is, um, although she's not so much in the food studies world anymore, but still in research. That's a great start, isn't it? Now, your first recipe when you were under 10... What was it? Yeah. I think maybe about 15 different recipes for scrambled eggs. I have it somewhere on my computer. I think it was my mum kept it on one of her hard drives. But, you know, it was like along with drinks and, yeah, method, ingredients. And we were growing herbs and different lettuces, salad vegetables in the garden as well. So, you know, incorporating things like that. And then there was also the blueprint for a restaurant and, you know, all the different recipes for <laughs> restaurant and I think it was called Purple Spoon or something like that. I don't know. Was it an influence of the Polish background or were you inculcated then into the Aussie food situation? 
I don't know. My parents like to eat as well. We would go to eat at all different restaurants, so I was always kind of being exposed to new food. Yeah, I... Did you have to wait till high school to have maybe cooking classes or home economics, that sort of thing, or did you just pick it up along the way? I picked it up at home because my mum was working in food. She had a lot of cookbooks anyway, so and she was doing, I think, research uh, with cookbooks and the stories that they tell. So I was always flipping through the cookbooks and I could see the different recipes. I think my first cookbook that I owned was the Donna Hay kids cooking one, which is very bright and colourful and it had stickers that you could put in the recipes that you tried and... So I was, you know, I could see from those recipes how I could design my own recipes at home and and do my own cooking like that. And we had a home ec class that I think I took for a semester and I was so bad at it just because I didn't really do well in school and I didn't really do well with people telling me what to do. So I can never, I can remember never enjoying those classes. Well, then how did you get into full-time cooking and enjoyment so, of food? I guess that's the that's the weird thing, that I didn't really like the school environment, but I was really in creative at home where, you know, I was kind of free to do what I wanted. So I think I was 14. There was a restaurant that had just opened up in Victoria Park in Perth, which is where I grew up. And it was called The Imp, and it was a Spanish tapas bar. And I just loved it there. And I think I might have either me or my parents kind of talked to the people that owned it and asked if I could go into the kitchen and do some kitchen hand work. And so I did that for a couple of months until we moved to Melbourne. But the chef back there could just see that I was really passionate about it. So I was mainly washing dishes. But I was also given some, like, you know, memorable experiences in plating some of the meals, like how to properly cook chorizo and, yeah, do the plating a meal to make it look perfect for the customer. And, yeah, so that was my first kitchen job. And what did your friends at school think about all this? Well, my scrambled eggs (laughs) recipe or recipes, I can remember I had a, a best friend she would become very annoyed on those long trips down south in Western Australia where I would be uh, reciting all the different ways that I could cook scrambled eggs, except she also loved it when I would cook for her. And she, her mum, I think, because they ha- they were a little bit wealthier than my parents, so she would go to this one grocery store, Italian deli, and buy all of these different cheeses, I would always love going to her house because her mum would have the pantry stocked with all of this different food and the fridge stocked with all this different food that I would just go and eat and cook different meals for her and her parents. So, <laughs> What did you think you were going to do when you left school? What was open to you? Because I had such a... I had a hard time at, with the private schools that I went to in my last couple of years in high school was at a public school that I loved and I was doing a lot of acting then but not doing any cooking it was just you know cooking was something that I did for fun and to make me feel good 
but you know I'd always had dreams of being a chef and cooking but I don't think that it was I went on a long holiday you know I was supposed to kind of move to Barcelona but that didn't really work out as I planned and that was in the year after I finished school when I came back I did a little bit of uni but I was in not such a great relationship and uh, had to stop uni just because I was going through mental health problems after that relationship and then I did a little bit of culinary school I think maybe a couple of months of it but it didn't really work out for me but that after that I was offered some work in Mildura with Stefano de Pereri uh, which was great so I was there for a little while and gained some skills and then moved back to Melbourne. I think I would have been 19 or 20 and started working at a Spanish tapas bar again. <laughs> Love my Spanish food. Just as a kitchen hand and then slowly worked up to Sue. And then at some point, you know, I was the head chef. But yeah, that was, that was what I was doing and I did that for a while and I think that there was, you know, like times working in pubs. I really liked that kind of like simple pub food as well. Just working with food wasn't enough, was it? You wanted to explore more about food and societies and what people do for food. Yeah, I mean, growing up with my mum as a sociologist, she was always making me think about other people and asking me big questions and getting, yeah, getting me to think, I suppose, like outside myself. And that was probably what inspired my activism and my interest in, my like strong interest in other people. And I was always really creative and passionate about this sort of stuff. Working in kitchens, it's no secret, it's really stressful there's a lot of drug and alcohol abuse and being a woman it makes it even more complicated I think I've spoke to some female identifying chefs and you know they've had a great time but I haven't been so so lucky my last job in the kitchen was um, I was hand making pasta and that we got a new head chef and he was just really disgusting and then one of the chef de parties was just homophobic didn't feel like a safe working environment and after working in that environment had made me feel burnt out distressed not comfortable and so I think it was at that point that I didn't want to work in hospitality anymore I started working at an organic store one of my housemates that I was living with at that time, she'd just gone back to uni and it kind of inspired me to start looking into doing higher education again. So I was just, you know, doing the Google, looking at what's available. And then there was food studies at William Anglis. It was a new degree. I think by that time it was two or three years old. You know, maybe if that was available when I just finished school that I would have jumped into something like that. But after I read the course description, you know, I think that I had a, a meeting with the course coordinator, Kelly Donati, maybe a week after and, you know, was ready to start in a couple of weeks if I could, but she advised me to just wait till the next year. So, 
yeah, that was kind of the way that that went. And what was it that appealed to you about the course? I guess every single subject, there was, you know, a word or keywords, the titles that, you know, it was something that in that inspired me or that I was really interested in. So fermenting cultures, like just that title was that, you know, we were going to be learning about cultures in uh, fermented food or we, we were we going to be learning about cultures that ferment, you know, and got me thinking, got all of these, like, I suppose, like the creative, passionate juices in me flowing because I was just thinking about everything that it could be and, you know, diet and health in society or understanding food systems. At that point, maybe I had some understanding of what a food system was, but not anywhere close to what I have now. So I think that just every single subject being about food and then knowing that I could get a degree out of that, it was just perfect. Just explain a bit more about a food system. I guess because food is integral to our daily lives, uh, we need it to survive. That means that it's a huge, complicated, I suppose, symbol in itself because there's so many different cultures, so many different people, so many different foods. So we have to think about all the different moving parts the production of the food, the distribution of the food, what happens when it's consumed, you know, how it's consumed, and then what happens with the all the waste products. When I think about a food system, I'm thinking about all of those moving parts and then how it's not just lineal. It should be circular, but it's not, you know, and then it also is vertical because we have all of, the different actors in each section. So consumption has the people that eat it, but it also we have to think about who's cooking it, who distributed it, all of these different things when we're thinking about the growing of food. You think about the farmers who are under pressure a lot of the time or big farmers that are owned by big organisations. We think about the workers who work in agricultural production and then, you know, that's connected to the people that own the farm machinery or the people that own the seeds and it's just this huge web of all the different actors, stakeholders, actions, symbols, cultural meanings that I suppose is all in our plate of food that we eat three to five times a day. I don't think I'll ever think about a plate of food differently again after all that. (laughs) How did that lead you to sustain? Nick Rose, who um, is the Executive Director of Sustain, the Australian Food Network, was also one of my lecturers at William Anglis. And he's been involved in the degree since its inception as well, um, closely working with Kelly, with Dr. Kelly Donati. So I first learnt about Sustain through the degree. Um, and then, you know, we attended different events with Sustain. I think, I'm not sure if they coordinated one, but the, the first time that I heard business 
talk about growing differently. So rather than expanding to, you know, create mass profit, they were just talking about being sustainable and being happy with how they were now. That was Holy Goat and it's Victorian Goat Cheese Organisation. They organise, you know, these different different events and they do different projects. As a food studies student, because they're so closely related, um, sustain and the degree, you know, we always have in the back of our mind, like, maybe we will work at sustain. It's definitely one of those dreams, but it's also grown since I first started the degree. So I don't think that there was so many opportunities to work at sustain as they are, are now. But the first time that we directly collaborated was with the Rebuilding Women Farm, women-owned farms in Gaza, and that was with Just Food. Um, but, yeah, that was the first time that I did work for Nick and Kelly at Sustain. The work involving the women in Gaza, was that the first time that, that you'd really thought about farmers in other countries? I guess there's some of our assignments we learn about farmers in in other countries but that was the first time that I got to speak to farmers or producers in another country and it was also when I got to really learn about the situation between Palestine and Israel and Gaza so I came in you know kind of knowing a little bit as you hear over the news and knowing my stance but yeah, it was, you know, one of those moments. We were doing that work through COVID and selfishly just being able to be a part of a campaign like that where, you know, we were having these meetings every week on a Wednesday talking to people on the other side of the world who had it so much worse than we did um, and learning about all of their struggles and, you know, even more about the food system, things that, we don't even think about from an Australian context, like uh, in Gaza, there's only four to six hours of electricity every day and it constantly gets cut. So how do you have a food production organisation or small business if you only have six hours of electricity? What do you do when your whole facilities get bombed out? Started to open my eyes up. You know, we learn about not looking at things just through a Western context, but it's hard to do that if you don't have specific examples. And I think it makes it easier when you're in direct contact with people who actually farm in a completely different way or produce in a completely different way than we do in Australia. Do you have an ongoing relationship with the women farmers in Gaza? I know that we had a follow-up webinar, but I wasn't able to be involved in that follow-up just because we had a few too many things going on but I know that there's been invites for us to come to visit Gaza yeah if that opportunity arose I'd definitely be taking that up because our friends especially Ahmed and Allah that we you know talk to every day I would love to be able to meet them in person. Now you're talking about food and you're talking about different cultures and looking just at the school environment and you found out that things aren't going too great for students. Yep. What did you find? In my second year of food studies, 
we were asked to do a food mapping environment assignment and it just happened that the area that I was mapping was a university area. You know, student food insecurity has been something that I've been passionate about, I suppose, like since then. And I've always been, I've been interested in food insecurity in general for a long time. And that, I suppose, goes back to the relationship that I had when I was younger that wasn't great. You know, we had food insecurity ourselves. We worked on a project as Just Food, looking at student food insecurity at William Anglis Institute. I guess that came about because we found out about some research that Sarah Guest was doing at the University of Melbourne. Initially, we just wanted to do a little event, just like to get people thinking about student food insecurity at William Anglis, but then just doing an event, a seminar, is not enough, or we didn't think that it was enough. We knew that there was ways that we could collect data to show the levels of food insecurity that we thought that we were going to find and that we did find, Um, and especially because this work is going on in a few different universities in Australia. There's been long-established work in the United States, so we kind of wanted to build this, and I guess it's also a great story I mean, in some ways, to look at food insecurity at a culinary institute where there's food everywhere. You know, we were all hoping that food insecurity wouldn't be as high as it is at William Anglis, but it was uh, after our collection, 205 students answered the survey, which is pretty good. It came back with 44% of them showing some levels of food insecurity, which is huge. It's almost half the student population. As we know, when you don't get adequate food, it has so many detrimental effects, like not doing well enough in school, having to drop out, being socially isolated because maybe you're not attending all of those events that your other friends are, bad mental health problems. It leads to so many different things that it's almost a joke that it isn't being talked about more. Except, you know, I know that it is a little bit like of a, I suppose, a long time problem that, you know, we normally hear about, like, you know, when you're in university, you just suffer. You have to work and, you know, you have to pay for your education and all of these different things. So, you know, that's just what students do. But I think that that kind of rhetoric is old and outdated and unfair. You've found the results of the survey then the question is what to do about it. Yeah, I can answer this on a few, on two different levels. So from the report that we wrote, we had a few different recommendations that have all been given to William Anglis. And we are in conversation with William Anglis. We have just found out that we're going to be having a meeting with the CEO in the next coming months, which will be great. And we have had quite a few meetings with some of the other more administrative staff about opening up a food pantry. And we've also applied for a grant for the city of Melbourne, which we won't find out about till June. But that would be to run the project called Our Student Food Hub, which would provide hot meal and groceries for a week and some frozen take-home meals, but also provide the opportunity for student employment 
because we would like it to be student-led and also to give work experience because it's important that when we're thinking about food insecurity, we're doing it in a dignified way because, I mean, I really like to eat food in a dignified way, so I know that other people would too. I think the soup van has worked in the past, but there's definitely better ways to feed people one level but also this isn't the first statistic that's been around 40 percent that's been found in Australia for Australian students so Just Food would love to continue to do this research into the research and I suppose advocacy work into student food insecurity for different universities in different states raising awareness that you know this problem isn't going away It's been researched for years in the States and in the past couple of years, you know, we, our universities has, have been coming out with these same statistics. So yeah, I guess we hope to start working on an advocacy campaign. Well, you seem to have achieved a fair bit in a fairly short time. Where are you now and where do you see the near future? On holiday right now which I feel is very well-deserved because last year as I was finishing my degree, I was working three, sometimes five jobs, which was fun. I definitely built up a lot of my experience and got to do a lot, but my partner and I are traveling around Australia in our van that we bought. We are just relaxing, eating different foods, seeing different things, still working on just food things on the road, and that's you know, a little bit hard because it's nice being on holiday (laughs) Um, and it's hard to do work when you're on holiday. But, you know, we kind of decided to ourselves that if we found a place that we loved, we would stop there for a little while and maybe do some work. But we, you know, applied for that grant with the City of Melbourne. If that was successful, we'd be back in Melbourne to see that out. And that um, would be a two-year grant But I would also really love to keep doing research, keep um, working with Sustain or at university level. I have a research project that I am really interested in doing either as a master's or a PhD, and that's looking at love and food policy. I think that love uh, from my research and yeah, my work in food systems, food policy at the local government area, um, local government level, government level, I found that a lot of the policies that are created kind of lack fundamental love theory. And I guess by that I mean they lack, you know, a genuine care for their community members. There's a lot of time constraints. There's a lot of deliverables that have to be met through grants that are given out by the government. And there's, you know, policies that are created in too little time without enough community collaboration. And I think when we're thinking about solving issues like food insecurity, that's just not the way that we're going to do it. And we have to look at it through the lens of if we actually love our communities and love our people, how can we solve these issues through that lens? And that would be taking the time to develop policies that work, thinking on a 
whole of systems lens, I guess that's my my passion and I more like my passion project that I would like to to look into more about the love theory because I think that it's even a little bit political to use the term love rather than other terms like capacity building or that sort of thing where my dream kind of next five years would be looking into love and food policy. Great well I've just got one little last thing to say to you what is your favourite food and what is your favourite meal? Oh no (laughs) it's the worst question to ask any foodie but I will say that any food eaten with people that I love like my friends and family is a meal that is perfect Uh, While we've been camping, we've had to eat really minimalistic. Probably my favourite meal on this little trip has been nachos that we made last night with a lot of fresh ingredients, local Byron Bay ingredients, which was great. But yeah, really any food eaten with someone I love is my favourite food. And best wishes to Savannah Sapsky a recent graduate from the William Anglis Institute, as ducks from the Bachelor of Food Studies degree. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot, and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs. Dot org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. We hear now from journalist Nick McClellan about issues for the peoples of the Pacific. There's a lot of movement at present in the uh, French-speaking territories of the Pacific. New Caledonia, French Polynesia, Wallace and Futuna, which are three dependencies administered by France as a colonial power across the Pacific. The uh, elections for the local assembly in French Polynesia began yesterday. People voting to elect 57 members for uh, the local uh, assembly in uh, Papeete, Tahiti. At the same time uh, this week, uh, Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong is due to travel to um, New Caledonia, uh, one of Australia's closest neighbours. That comes at a time when there's a lot of debate about France-Australia relations and the way in which the Labor government has rebuilt ties with uh, the uh, born government in France and uh, President Emmanuel Macron, ties that were ruptured between Canberra and Paris over the submarines affair in 2021 and the creation of AUKUS, the Australia-United Kingdom-US alliance. Who is standing, Nick? Well, it's really interesting. There's a very strong push from the Independence Party, Tavini Huiratira no Te Maui. It's quite a... A mouthful, I mean, serve the people of uh, Te Maui uh, or Maui Nui. The local indigenous people are known as Maui in uh, French Polynesia, which has been a, 
a French colony since the 19th century. The current government is led by a guy called Edouard Fritsch, President Edouard Fritsch, who is um, from the Tapura Party, French loyalist, um, what they call autonomist, rather than independent supporter in French Polynesia, and he's been in power since 2014. But the independence movement's in the, on a bit of a roll there. Last year, the uh, French government held their elections for the French National Assembly. That's the parliament in uh, Paris. It's uh, 577 members, and French Polynesia gets three seats in that large assembly. And for the first time ever in June last year, the Independence Party, Tavini Huyavatira, won all three seats. In fact, previously, only in 2018, they won their first seat. Last year, they swept all three seats. One of the reasons for that was the mismanagement of the COVID pandemic by the French government, by the current uh, uh, pro-French government. Uh, you know, French Polynesia, as we've talked about on the program uh, in the past, had a really terrible experience during the uh, pandemic. Two major waves of uh, COVID infection. Indeed, French Polynesia had the, the highest rate per capita of infection of any Pacific Island country and significant numbers of deaths for a pretty small country, about uh, 280,000 people. Beyond that, there was all the uh, social impacts that many of us felt, um, but particularly economic impacts in French Polynesia because it's very highly reliant on tourism. Uh, you know, so many wealthy people from Europe, uh, from the North America, um, increasingly China, travel to French Polynesia to go to the beaches of Bora Bora, to, uh, you know, Tahiti has this exotic paradise image and it's marketed as such. But tourism collapsed overnight uh, with the closure of borders in 2020. So right throughout the period 2020, 2021, as Australians were grappling with the social, the cultural, the economic impacts, so was French Polynesia. French government really mismanaged it, according to many people I've spoken to in Tahiti, and they're paying the price at the polls. So last year, as I say, the, the right wing lost all three seats to this uh, resurgent things. And it's a new generation, a younger generation of independence activists. Tavini Huiratira grew out of a Polynesian Liberation Front in the 1970s. It's been around for a long time, led by Oscar Temeru, a long-time anti-nuclear independence leader. New generation has stepped up. And one of the uh, striking things about last year's vote was that the youngest candidate was a 21-year-old who won uh, one of the seats in the main island of Tahiti. He's the youngest person ever elected to the French National Assembly. And that sort of symbolizes the, the interest of young people to have a say in political life. And so Tavini are hoping that the momentum they got from last year's elections will carry through to this year's poll, which goes over two votes, the initial vote yesterday and uh, a second round of runoff between the leading contenders for those that don't win a, an absolute majority in the first round. What policies are they running on? It's a very important mix. Um, in the short term, there's a major focus on good governance. Um, you know, the failures of, of the Tapura administration, which has been in power since 2014. So there's a bit of an it's time move uh, to bring in a, a new coalition. Uh, there's also a major focus on cost of living, housing, jobs, all the things, bread and butter issues that people vote for in any election. But underlying it is the recognition that French Polynesia is still a French colony. Um, it's listed with the United Nations on their list of non-self-governing territories. That's the UN jargon for a colony. The uh, leading uh, figure in 
the independence movement, Oscar Temeru, and his uh, key uh, lieutenant, uh, a guy called Moatai Brotherson, have been saying that these underlying social, economic, cultural problems are in part because people in uh, French Polynesia can't make decisions about their place in the region, about their economic policies, simply because the local autonomy statute that was created more than a decade ago, uh, more than two decades ago, I should say, just doesn't meet 21st century realities, and they really want to be able to manage their own affairs. They want to be, obviously, an independent and sovereign state. While there's a major focus in this election on uh, the day-by-day hip-pocket issues around jobs, around housing, around the cost of living that everyone tries to address during election campaigns, underlying it is the recognition that uh, there needs to be a change in political status. And Moatai Brotherson, who's in his early 50s, has been nominated as the candidate for the presidency. If in the second round of voting on the 30th of April, Davini Huiratira wins a majority in the Assembly, and it's going to be a very tight race, difficult to predict, uh, because there's a whole lot of different parties contending, see Moatai Brotherson stand against Edward Fritsch for the presidency of the country. And obviously, if Tavini's got the numbers in the Assembly, um, you'll have a pro-independence president in French Polynesia for the first time in nearly two decades. What's going to be striking, too, is that at the moment, the president of New Caledonia, the Melanesian nation much closer to Australia, just off the coast of Queensland, also has, for the first time in 40 years, a pro-independence connect leader, President Louis Mapu. And so to have, if... Tavini can get the votes, and it's still obviously counting on going on a a second round to be held in a couple of weeks. Um, If they can get a majority, you'll have two pro-independence presidents in power, and that really throws a a spanner in the works for President Emmanuel Macron's Indo-Pacific strategy, which uh, sees France claiming to be a balancing power in the Pacific against the major superpowers, China and the United States, based on its presence in French Polynesia, New Caledonia, uh, Wilson Futuna. I was in Numia just uh, uh, 10 days ago and uh, interviewed the president of New Caledonia and he says, we don't want to be part of uh, France's Indo-Pacific strategy. We want to reintegrate with our regional environment, our natural environment. He said, Australia, New Zealand, the neighbouring Melanesian countries and the wider island states of the Pacific. Well, it's a real challenge. Indeed, Australia's uh, foreign minister, Penny Wong, is due to travel to New Caledonia very soon, a real awareness in uh, Australia that um, it has to engage with Pacific Island countries, governments, communities, because of the perceived strategic advances by China in the region. Pretty much every Pacific Island country, including New Caledonia and French Polynesia, has China as their largest trading partner, Um, just as Australia, just as New Zealand has China as a major source of revenue for the corporate sector, for trade and so on. Every Pacific Island country is grappling with the same thing as Australia and New Zealand. How do you engage with uh, China at a time that the United States is weaving a latticework of alliances and partnerships to contain or even roll back Chinese influence in the region? And Australia, as we know, has chosen sides in that discussion. Australia through ANZUS, through AUKUS, through the Quad, through integration of our military into U.S. warfighting strategies is very much part of this U.S. push for the containment of China. But many uh, Pacific Island countries have a policy of what they call, in shorthand, 
friends to all, enemies to none. They're certainly not unaware of China's human rights violations. Uh, they're not unaware of the militarization going on in the Northern Pacific, but they say they want to be able to engage with any partner, be it China or Cuba or France or the United States, Australia, obviously, a big player in the region, on their terms, for their interests, and addressing the greatest security challenge, climate change. And so when I interviewed President Mapu uh, and also the President of the Congress, um, Rock Omiton, leaders, both supporters and opponents of independence, they're all looking at these immediate concerns about livelihoods and welfare, how climate change is changing the terrain, and really wanting to break down the barriers that have seen French-speaking peoples around the Pacific quite um, isolated from neighbouring countries. And they're eager to extend that through a whole range of, of engagements. So President Mapu said uh, quite openly that uh, the independence movement that he's been a member of, the Canac Socialist National Liberation Front, he says that the FNKS has been proudly non-aligned for a long time and has always supported since the 1980s a policy for a nuclear-free Pacific. And so at a time where uh, countries are being pushed to, to choose sides in the growing strategic tensions between the United States and China, many of our Pacific Island neighbours are saying, no, we don't have to choose sides, nor do we want to choose sides. And uh, some countries like Vanuatu, Fiji, are members of the non-aligned movement. Um, the independence movement in New Caledonia has been attending non-aligned movement summits for some time. And President Mapu, on the record, also raised questions about AUKUS, what Australia's purchase of nuclear submarines would mean for the Treaty of Rarotonga, the treaty, 1985 treaty that created the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty. He asked why the amount of resources being put into, into AUKUS and the Nuclear Submarines Program, what that would mean for the Boy Declaration on Regional Security. That was an agreement signed by Pacific Island countries and Australia and New Zealand at the Nauru Forum in 2018. And the Boy Declaration broadens out the discussion about security to include human security, environmental security, as well as traditional state-to-state -state security. But it says explicitly, and indeed Australia has signed on to this, and I quote, the greatest single threat to the well-being, livelihoods and security of the Pacific is climate change. Our neighbours say the number one security challenge for their communities, their societies, their very existence as states is climate change and the adverse effects of climate change. And you don't have to go far to see that. Vanuatu got hit by two cyclones in one week. Two Category 4 cyclones in one week hit Vanuatu in March. Enormous devastation. And yet Vanuatu, diplomatically, at that very same time, was successfully persuading the UN General Assembly to pass a resolution that the International Court of Justice, the highest court under the United Nations system, that the ICJ provide an advisory opinion about the human rights implications of climate change. So even as Vanuatu looks to neighbours like Australia for support to deal with the disasters that have hit them from increasingly intense cyclones, they're also active on the international stage, and it's an amazing achievement, first initiated by a group of law students from the law school in Vanuatu, that an advisory opinion will now be sought from the highest court within the United Nations system to look at the implications of climate change on human rights. And by implications, 
liability of states to the effects of that climate change. Now, there's only an advisory opinion, but um, I spoke with uh, Tuiloma Narani Slade, an eminent jurist, the other day, and uh, he said um, this will have enormous implications for international human rights law if uh, this advisory opinion is passed. This is going to be some years down the track. Uh, countries will now have to make submissions to the ICJ. Um, there'll be a series of hearings. This is no quick fix, but it's an example of the active, what's called oceanic diplomacy. You know, this image of Pacific Islanders um, as uh, victims of uh, climate change. Well, that's certainly true at one level because people have been devastated by sea level rise, by intense cyclones, by other effects of human-induced climate change. But at the same time, they're active at the local, at the regional, at the international level, seeking stronger policies, seeking more intense uh, and rapid emissions reductions, seeking climate finance. And this will be the challenge for the Albanese government um, as Penny Wong tours the region, as she's been doing, as uh, Prime Minister Albanese heads to the Pacific Islands Forum uh, at the end of this year in the Cook Islands. There's a lot of questions being raised about whether Australia is meeting its obligations, according to the science, to reduce emissions more rapidly and to provide the funding that can address problems of adapting to climate and indeed what's called loss and damage. Nick, what do you believe is the continuing cultural impact of French colonisation on these countries in the Pacific? Well, it's very stark. You know, President Mapu used to be the head of the Land Reform Agency, one of the major achievements of the independence struggle in the 1980s, which saw armed conflict between the French state, uh, right-wing militias and the independence movement, was to set up a series of institutions and processes that could address questions of Kanak identity, cultural identity, and fundamentally land reform. Because, as we know, in Australia, one of the great features of the colonial processes, the theft of land and the damage that does to culture and identity because of loss of place, loss of country. Mapu was head of the ADRAF, which was the Land Reform Agency, which sought to reclaim and indeed repurchase land for customary landowners. When I spoke to him in my interview, which is online on the Islands Business website, um, he talked a lot about this issue, particularly because um, Senator Penny Wong, as Foreign Minister, stood before the United Nations in September last year and said that Australia wanted to bring First Nations perspectives into its foreign policy. Australia has just appointed an ambassador for Indigenous, uh, uh, Justin Mohammed, who's setting up a new office within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and trying to look at how Indigenous perspectives might influence our engagement with the world around us. President Mapu said, uh, you know, oh, this is wonderful. He had a long knowledge, a very detailed knowledge. I was surprised by how detailed about Aboriginal politics in Australia. He talked about, you know, the whole sham theory of terra nullius. He talked about in our interview the Mabo case and the way in which it had transformed the debate about land ownership and land rights in Australia. ATSIC, what that meant for a voice for Aboriginal people in the past, how it was key player. He talked also about the stolen generations. I, mean, I think it's really important that people in Australia understand that neighbouring Pacific Island countries look at how Australia engages with Indigenous peoples, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Australia as a mark of their sincerity for their engagement, <laughs> remembering of course that we were 
a colonial power in the Pacific, in Papua New Guinea, in Nauru, um, and still indeed maintain a neo-colonial policy around the region. So this debate that's going on at the moment about a voice to parliament, about treaty, about makarata, is being watched by neighbouring countries. Mapu also, though, I think made a rather pointed remark, this was also relevant for Australia's engagement with New Caledonia. You know, he talked about the rights of Kanak customary landowners, uh, what he called the indigenous question. And I'm not quite sure that, that Penny Wong, um, as a representative of the Australian government, wants to take on the full agenda of what First Nations perspectives might be. Louis Mapu, the first Kanak independence leader of New Caledonia in nearly 40 years, was quite open. He said, great, if we're going to talk about First Nations perspectives, the core principles of any First Nations policy is about self-determination and emancipation, and that needs to be seen on the international stage as well as in Australia. You and I have talked many times about uh, self-determination struggles in West Papua, in Bougainville, in New Caledonia, in French Polynesia, you know, an end to colonialism in the region and to post-colonial states oppressing communities within their own borders. We'll see how, how the Australian government reacts as they try and address this question of First Nations foreign policy. How far does that go? What does that mean? And these are the sort of questions that our neighbours are asking. Does this move beyond tokenism to actually address the substance the right to self-determination is the first principle in every international law human rights convention under the United Nations. You know, I spoke with Rock Womiton, a long-time independence leader who's currently the president of New Caledonia's Congress. That's their local legislature. He said, look, we understand that Australia has its security interests. We understand that Australia has its partnerships with uh, uh, major powers like the United States and France. We understand that Australia has declared China an enemy. We get it. We, however, have a different way of working, a bit more like the New Zealand line. I don't know whether that's quite true, but that was his words. Um, you know, we want to talk more. We want to cooperate more with countries. As, you know, an independence movement in New Caledonia, we want to determine our own inter interdependences. We want to manage the relationships that we have. And Wamiton talked, obviously, that their priority was not France's Indo-Pacific strategy, um, which is part of the great geopolitical contest that's underway at the moment. Their priority was what they call regional integration, building cultural, economic, trade ties with Australia, with New Zealand, particularly with the member countries of the Melanesian Spearhead Group, Papua New Guinea, Solomons, Vanuatu, Fiji, obviously then their neighbourhood and the wider Pacific. And I think there's a tension Australia has been rebuilding its relationship with France. Uh, the Labor government's been very actively working with France on its Indo-Pacific strategy. And what uh, began under the days of Kevin Rudd, then Malcolm Turnbull and so on, the strategic partnership between France and Australia. At the same time, Melanesian countries are saying, well, hang on, we want to focus on our agenda, our priorities. And these are reflected in the Pacific Islands Forum statement adopted last year in July in, in Fiji, the 2050 strategy for a blue Pacific continent. Um, and President Mapu talked about the importance of that strategy, the importance of regional bodies like the Forum and New Caledonia, French Polynesia, both full members of the Forum, and wanting to address island priorities, climate, oceans, development, poverty alleviation, cultural advancement uh, using Pacific perspectives. And that's just a fundamental tension with the sort of geopolitical context 
where the United States and China are seeking partners and allies in the region for their own uh, broader geopolitical ends. The legacies of nuclear testing in French Polynesia, as well as in Australia, resonate. You know, most Australians have forgotten that this year is the 70th anniversary of the totem tests at Emu Field. British conducted nuclear tests at Emu Field in Maralinga, um, in the deserts of South Australia. And when Prime Minister Albanese and Defence Minister Richard Miles acknowledged that at the end of their life, which is going to be decades and decades away, but uh, if they ever get built, the nuclear submarines that are part of the AUKUS package will need to be dismantled and Australia will store the waste on defence land. Well, when they say defence land, they mean unceded Aboriginal land, probably in South Australia, probably at Maralinga and Emu Field and the Woomera Rocket Range lands that were already polluted during the 1950s and early 1960s by British nuclear tests and hundreds of nuclear experiments where the British burnt plutonium and sent plutonium and americium-laden clouds across the desert that are scarred today with pollution and will be forevermore in our lifetime. And that anger in Australia from Indigenous people in South Australia that once again this nuclear industry may end up having high-level waste dumped on their land, that resonates across the region. In French Polynesia, France conducted 193 nuclear tests at Mororoa and Fungatofa. The United States conducted 67 tests in the Republic of the Marshall Islands. And people are living with the health, the environmental, the cultural consequences to this day. And systems of compensation, of reparation, of cleanup have failed miserably for the British, the French, the Americans, who conducted more than 310 nuclear tests across the region, countless other nuclear experiments. So when everyone talks gaily about nuclear submarines, let's build a new nuclear industry in Australia, even if they're polite about AUKUS, even if they say, well, we have some questions, even if they don't denounce AUKUS, um, from communities and indeed from governments in the region, people remember the legacies of the Cold War nuclear era and they worry that as we're advancing into a new Cold War nuclear era, people haven't learnt the lessons from the 20th century. And Nick McClellan writes for Islands Business Online Journal. Talofalava, Malo Elele, Kiorana, Fakalofalahiatu, Kiora, Isa Bulevinaka, Aloha, Woman Jacka, and Hello. This is PX Fano on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. The voices of our community. Talking Queer Pacifica, talking us. Saturday afternoons, 1.30 to 2 o'clock, only on 3CR. Join us as we share the stories of our diverse people, from arts and culture to news and opinions and information about our community for our community. As a collective, we are all proud Pacifica diaspora advocating for our people from the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. This is presented by the Pacific X Collective and produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. There is no doubt in many people's minds that the US is preparing for war with China and Australia is hanging on the coattails. Dr Alison Bronowski, former diplomat, author and academic and president of the Australians for War Powers Reform, has added another dimension, writing in Pearls and Irritations, 
that Australia is preparing a legal case for war over, quote, non-sovereign nation, unquote, Taiwan, which she calls an unheard of way to war. I asked her to explain. If you read very carefully what the committee has recommended, the committee that is looking in or that has looked into reform of the war powers and has recently reported that, they've got a paragraph in there which looks all right when you just quickly read it. But when you look at it carefully, you see that they say the previous role of the Governor General should be restored. Okay, that's fine. The previous role of the Governor General is already in the Constitution. That is, the Governor General is Commander-in-Chief and can, therefore, order the army to go to war. And that, in fact, happened. That's how we went to World War One. But... In recent times, and in fact that includes Vietnam and Iraq, the role of the Governor-General was overlooked or sidestepped by the government of the day. The Governor-General was not consulted, and that is improper. So, okay, putting that back in seems just to be correcting the, the niceties of the situation. In fact, though, the recommendation they've made goes on a bit further, and it says... In particular, and so they stress this, they want the Governor-General to be involved if the proposition for war is one that is not approved by the UN Security Council and is not covered by an invitation coming from a sovereign state. We managed, in the case of Vietnam, uh, because we drafted it ourselves and got the Vietnamese government to give it to us, we managed to get an invitation to go to the Vietnam War. That's what the Menzies government did. We had no such invitation, obviously, when we invaded Iraq. And what they're saying is that in a situation like that, where there is no invitation from a sovereign state and there is no UN Security Council, that is just the situation we were in in both Vietnam and Iraq, the Governor-General should be enabled to authorise the dispatch of the troops. This is something that is seriously worrying because what is the most likely non-sovereign state to be involved in a war? Clearly, Taiwan. Taiwan is not a sovereign state. Taiwan is part, and we recognize this, part of China. It's a province of China. And so if there were to be a war involving Taiwan and Australian troops going in either to Taiwan or to the seas near and around Taiwan, what they're trying to do is have the Governor-General authorise that. And we find that, and others too, looking at this closely, find this a very alarming prospect. And it's alarming not only because we might do it, but because they're clearly planning to do it. That's why they've got this recommendation. And you're saying that we've got a compliant Governor-General? The Governor-General, whoever that is, is obliged to consent to the government's wishes. The Governor-General can ask for further information, but the Governor-General is advised by the Prime Minister of the day and 
will consent. Otherwise, there's a constitutional crisis. And the reserve powers, which Sir John Kerr exercised, wouldn't arise in this situation, even though nobody clearly knows what they are. In his role as commander-in-chief, he would do this. Well, where does that leave us, Alison? It leaves us on the high road to war with Taiwan. It leaves us with a dodgy government that is trying to organise it. And it is the, the absolute contradiction of all the things that they are saying about transparency and honesty and accountability to the public about matters involving war. They're saying that in the defence the defense legislation inquiry, which is going on now and being rushed through in a very few days, they're doing everything they can to smooth the path. For when the Americans tell us, go to war and we go. I know a lot of people are shocked that the Labor Party has reacted, has it has since it's been in power. Were you or are you? When the government uh, was elected and started immediately on its program of promised reforms, I think everybody was greatly encouraged and suddenly realised what it was like to have a responsible government in Canberra, which we hadn't had for years. So there was sort of public euphoria about that. And on its domestic and social agendas, the government has indeed carried out what it said it would do step by step to the extent that it said that its first priority was the the voice to parliament. It's pressed on with that in spite of disagreements. And on the other matters which it said it would take action, it's done that. But fact is that this government is bipartisan with the opposition on matters to do with war, matters to do with defence and foreign policy. And so there's no difference, there's no change between what an Albanese government is doing and what a Morrison government would have done. They are in fact carrying out foreign and defence policies which haven't changed at all. And the disappointing thing is that we hoped for more from a foreign minister like Penny Wong. From Richard Miles, we didn't expect anything because he was entirely in the same camp as the uh, previous government on matters of defence. But we did hope for something better from Penny Wong, but she has come out against reform of the war powers and totally behind the government uh, on what it is now planning to do. You've mentioned two members of the Cabinet. Have they just brought the other ones along with them, or do you believe that they agreed with him in the first place? I have no idea, except that the Cabinet itself, most of them take the view that foreign and defence matters are things that they don't have to get involved with. They stand aside from them, and that's why the decision for war, when it's made, is usually made by the Prime Minister virtually alone, perhaps with the Foreign Minister and the Defence Minister alongside, but there is no discussion. And other ministers, including, unfortunately, Finance Minister and the Treasurer, who should be very concerned about the costs of war, just do not apparently argue against it. But I'm not inside the, the Cabinet room, and so I can't say. The thing that is really concerning is... In spite of all their talk, 
the way Australia is heading is in a direction of no policy, no independent policy in these matters at all. Not only is it the government agreeing entirely with the opposition, but both of them seem to be marching in lockstep with the United States. And that is just the most appalling prospect because we don't know what who the next president is going to be. We don't know what these people are going to do next. And we are implicated in whatever mad idea they have. And there was an article the other day in, in an American online journal saying that, talking about AUKUS, and saying that AUKUS has absolutely nothing to do with the defense of Australia. It has everything to do with the production of American power in our region against China. Australia is simply being used as a forward base, a launching place, a garrison for the weaponry that the United States is amassing and building in our region to point against China and indeed to provoke China. And this article was saying the crazy thing about it is that Australia is paying for the privilege of this enormous expenditure on weapons that have nothing to do with the defence of the mainland continent of Australia at all. Well, where do we fit in with other countries in our region? And I'm thinking of New Zealand. There's no way they're going to go the way we are. New Zealand is wise enough to stay right out of it. <laughs> they won't have anything to do with nuclear weapons or ships or power, nuclear-powered ships or anything of that kind. It has never done them any great damage with the United States. They got cut off intelligence for a while, but that would doom them either. And they're, they're back in the loop as far as the five powers are concerned. And New Zealand isn't suffering in the slightest, nor is New Zealand threatened by China any more than Australia is threatened by China. The only reason that China poses a threat to Australia, if it does, is because it would be concerned about the massive American military build-up that's taking place in Australia, which New Zealand doesn't have. Other countries around the region, I was just talking to somebody last night who spends a lot of time in Malaysia, and he was saying, the Malaysians come up to him and say, what are you people doing? Have you lost your minds? You have to live here like we do. You have to live side by side with China. What is the point of antagonizing China to fight a war you won't win? Why are you doing this? And he was saying that the Malaysians and others, and we know the Indonesians too, are very concerned about what Australia is doing and what Australia could implicate the rest of the region in by provoking China into hostilities of one kind or another. What about those other countries? I'm pretty sure that Indonesia is not happy. The Philippines, I together, don't have any choice. What about countries like India? What are their thoughts on the way America is going? Yeah, it's interesting about India. If you read people like Ramesh Thakur, who of course has an Indian background but uh, is Australian, he's, he's got a foot in both camps about India and China. The, the Indians and the Chinese have a long-running difference over their border where there have been the odd sort of skirmish from 
time to time with each blaming the other and disputing the, the boundaries and so on. But India knows that if they got themselves into a fighting war with China, they too would lose. And so they deliberately, I think, stay away from it. They've kept their relationship uh, with Russia going quite well, in spite of joining the Quad, which is intended, of course, to surround China with what Clinton Fernandez has called a, a chain of steel. The Indians are actually doing what we are not doing. They are putting their own national interests first, their own national security first, looking how to safeguard both of those while playing one side off against the other. They're staying quite close to Russia while they're still joining the quad, keeping at arm's length from China but not provoking China. And it's that kind of subtle diplomacy that Australia should be employing. And unfortunately, Penny Wong, who is capable of it, is not doing it. Coming back to Australia, another worry about foreign affairs at the moment, because coming out of the, the recommendations of the committee that we were talking about earlier, is the proposal that they should set up a new statutory committee of the parliament about defence. So in other words, the Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade will now lose defence and defence will go to a new standing committee. And in the hierarchy of things, a standing committee has more power. Uh, sorry, a statutory committee has more power than the standing committee. And so defence alone will have a statutory committee to advise the government on what it should do on matters of defence. And it won't have, as it has at present, the sort of hopefully negotiating voice of foreign affairs in there. Foreign affairs won't be there. So there'll be no compromise between defence and what it wants. That too is, is a further alarming development about the militarisation of Australian policy, which is going on right now. And when it's called defence, you know, we're an awful long way from China and we seem to fight these wars that are a long way from our country and they're not our wars at all, they're America's wars. Exactly. And there is no need for us to be involved in America's wars, particularly because China is not our enemy. We need to coexist with China for the forever and ever. And so fighting a war against them isn't going to create anything but pain for one and all, particularly because, uh, as I said, the United States will lose it with or without Australian support because you don't win a war against a country which is defending its own homeland. I mean, you might even apply that to Ukraine and then you'd have an argument about how much of it is its own homeland, but I'm not going there. The Chinese simply cannot cannot lose a war over their own homeland. And they include in that Taiwan, of course. Whereas the United States, if a war of that sort wasn't going well, simply retreat, leaving Australia to cope with the consequences because we would have been involved in it as their ally. 
the other thing that really worries me is how such a war is going to start. Because the Chinese won't start it. Who will? The Taiwanese won't start it. If the Americans want a war, they'll have to start it themselves. This has been known to happen before, as in the Gulf of Tonkin exercise, of course, which brought North Vietnam into the war, or rather justified the United States bombing North Vietnam. What is going to be really worrying is how the Americans do this. If they really want to do it, they will either stage a false flag event somewhere near Taiwan or South China Sea somewhere, in which they will claim that one of their ships or aircraft or one of ours has been attacked. That will be, whether it's true or not, will be a cause for war and, worse, invoke the ANZUS Treaty, which means that Australia will have to consider being involved in that war. Under those circumstances, depending upon how how it's presented, how the propaganda is organised, Australians will say, oh, right, oh, gosh, you know, yeah, we'll have to do this. The Americans have been attacked in our region. That, therefore, fits in with ANZUS, and that means we've got to go to war. And if the Americans want us so badly to join their coalition for war against China, that is how they would do it. I'd imagine that the peoples of Korea and Japan are pretty apprehensive at this moment too. Yes, they are, particularly Korea, because the Koreans have been trying to stay for every good reason that it's obvious. For their, from their particular position, they don't want a war of any kind, and particularly not one that involves China, which is the major supporter of, of their main enemy, North Korea, just over their own border. And so they have been stay, trying to stay, keep their distance from it, despite the fact that they have American bases on their territory, just as we now do, and just as the Japanese do. The Japanese, on the other hand, who've got their own problems with Korea and China, have in recent times moved away from adhering to their peaceful constitution and started to find ways around it to do whatever they want to do to become a, quote, normal country. Normal countries mean, in in these terms, a country that goes to war, which Japan does not and has not since 1945. And their constitution says they will not. They've been trying to revise this constitution for a very long time. The Americans pushing them all the time. That is what they would like to do. And that's why they joined the Quad. And that's why they have even been trying to get into AUKUS. There's been no great enthusiasm for a Jorkus arrangement, and they've also been trying to get into the Quad. No enthusiasm for that. But we now have an agreement with Japan about, I've forgotten what the term is, it means cooperation in defence and strategic matters. That, in turn, could mean that if there were to be uh, an American-inspired war in the region, 
both Australia and Japan would be automatically involved in it. And that is an even more worrying development because the Americans always want a coalition. They never like to go to war by themselves. They have to present it to Congress as a coalition of willing countries that support the United States. Japan, under its present government, certainly does. Australia, under its present government, does too. So there we are. Well, Alison, where does this leave groups such as yours and other people who are appalled at what's happening? And I'm thinking about the rally that was held a month or so ago and the numbers weren't what many people expected or hoped for. Maybe they weren't as big because when you've had other wars, it's usually been the Liberal Party who's initiated a war. At this time, it's the Labor Party and the people loyal to the Labor Party won't go to a demonstration. Is that right or not? Yeah, it is, as you say, it's an exceptional situation because we've never had this kind of bipartisanship. People would remember that when we went into Iraq, Simon Crean, as leader of the opposition, made a most impressive speech in the parliament saying that if he got into government, he would never authorise an illegal war. And, you know, that was Labour then. Now, it's a completely different animal. It's very hard, as you say, for people to know where they stand on this. As far as I'm concerned, I judge the government by its behaviour, not by who it claims to be or to represent. There are plenty of people in and around Labour who don't like this development at all, but they're stuck with it, it seems. I wish that the people in Labour would realise how far away they are from the general direction of public opinion and how much outrage there would be if these developments took place. Because unlike, say, well, Iraq was far away and a lot of people didn't care about it, many, many people did and protested against it and were ignored. But that was the Liberal government. As far as this is concerned, I think there would be huge public disaffection if there were to be a war of the kind we've just been talking about. That people now realise the kind of propaganda and building up slow, incremental steps that are taken to achieve these wars. They don't happen just overnight. They happen after years of careful, careful inch by inch planning and we are on that on that track right now and I think there are a lot of people out there who recognise it, who've seen it before, who know what they're what's coming and will not be conned. And I've been speaking with Dr Alison Bronowski, President of Australians for War Powers Reform. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. 
and for all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows. It would appear that as the US supported Saudi led war on Yemen enters its ninth year, a permanent ceasefire is likely after. Saudi Amani envoys had talks with Houthi leaders in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, to end eight years of hostilities, which has killed more than 150,000 and left the Middle East poorest country in tatters. I'm speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson, and Tim, just before we talk about the country, for those who haven't got an atlas handy, a geographical aspect of where Yemen is. Sure, Yemen is at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula, so between Africa and um, the Persian Gulf. Pokes out, or really there's like a um, prominent point by which Yemen is at the entrance of the Red Sea. So it's between the Horn of Africa and the the southern, the southwestern point of the Arabian Peninsula. So it's quite an important strategic position, which of course has not lost on the U.S. with its global plans or it hasn't been lost on China with its Belt and Road initiative either. Well, let's go back a, a while. Tim, it was a, a protectorate or a colony of Britain. How long ago was that? Yeah, the, British, the British effectively colonised it, was divided into north and south, and there have been proposals more recently by the, the Persian Gulf Arab monarchies to uh, repartition it and, and weaken it, of course, in colonial terms, all of these partitions, you know, from Panama to the north of Ireland have all been about effectively weakening the independent states that are left behind. So Yemen was reunified um, some decades ago, but um, in recent times there's been a proposal to repartition it, which the, which the Yemeni, the main Yemeni popular movement has resisted, basically, and that's an important basis for the conflict at the moment. Well, can you talk about the main protagonists in this conflict and how long it's been going? So the main protagonists are there's a a popular, a revolutionary movement effectively led by a group that was called the Houthis, but it's wrong to call them the Houthis now because they created a political party back at the time of the Arab Spring. This is the only really successful revolution of the so-called Arab Spring period, a genuine indigenous revolution drawing on Republican roots of the the Yemeni revolution in the 1960s, which was derailed. So that party, Ansarallah, is now the leader of a coalition which is um, called itself the National Salvation Government, based in the capital of Sana'a in Yemen. And most of the population in Yemen is in the west and north of the country because um, a lot of the rest of the country is desert. What happened was when the, the Ansarallah-led coalition was uh, about to take Aden, which is the other major city, a major port city. The Saudis intervened, of course, the Saudis at that time being the creatures of Washington. These days, the Saudis are trying to get a little bit of, of arm's length from Washington, but back then it was really, the Saudis were, on the one hand, acting in their own interest, on the other hand, acting on behalf of the Washington, which has this 
program for a new Middle East, which really was the underlying rationale for all of the conflicts and wars and interventions and invasions of the region. Um, so the Saudis began this war against the Yemeni revolution effectively, and they were joined by the Emiratis, the UAE, who backed something called the Southern um, Transitional Council. It's like a, a, a group of Yemenis who are linked to, in both cases, in, in the case of the Saudi allies within Yemen and the Emirati allies within Yemen, they're linked to Salafism or Wahhabism, that sectarian strain of Islam which um, is hostile to other sects within Islam. That's been used very effectively to divide people based on religious sectarian grounds in the region. And where does the, neighboring, the other neighbouring country of Oman come into it? Well, Oman, which is the neighbour, as you say, on the east side, on the Persian Gulf side, has played a fairly effective um, neutral and sometimes mediating role. Um, they didn't get involved in the war against Syria, for example, where all the other Persian Gulf monarchies were supporting these Salafist, Wahhabi, sectarian Islam link or sectarian Islam link guerrilla groups, Muslim Brotherhood and, and uh, Al-Qaeda groups and so on. Those groups have uh, their own genuine roots in Yemen and, of course, supported by the Saudis in particular with their Wahhabi brand of, of sectarianism. So really, in, in, the, in the last decade, you've had really two groups opposing the Yemeni revolution and the National Salvation Army, and that's the Saudi-linked groups, um, which are in the north and, and the east, and the Emirati groups in the south. Joined by Israel, by the way, the Israelis have joined in with the Emiratis, for example, in, in occupying Socotra Island, which is a strategically placed and World Heritage listed island um, south of Yemen, basically. So you've got two big groups, the south, the southern, the eastern uh, in the desert conflict there. But the National Salvation Government, the Ansarullah-led one, which the, the Western media calls Houthi rebels, which is really inappropriate given where they've come now, they control about 70% of the, of the populated areas of the country. When you talk about the, the partitions of countries like, like Yemen and Syria, it's inappropriate to talk about the amount of land because you can talk about big desert areas which are under sort of some sort of contest. But in populated areas, I've done some calculations and the, the Ansarullah-led government controls about 70% of the populated areas. Well, it looks on the map, as you say, there's a lot of desert there, but it looks a lot like a David and Goliath. Where do the people in Yemen get their support from? Well, first of all, you're right that it, um, it looks like a David and Goliath because the, those who have joined in the war against this Yemeni revolution, against the effective Yemeni government, uh, really include, um, of course, not just the Saudis and the Emiratis, but they're backed by the US, all of the NATO states, the British are in there. They've got people from many other countries to help it, partly because, and, and with that sort of pressure, they've managed to get a unanimous UN Security Council resolution supporting the war against the Houthi rebels and supporting the blockade of them. That means they're effectively blockading the majority of the Yemeni population. So while they cry crocodile tears at the UN about the terrible humanitarian situation there, it's a UN Security Council resolution which imposes the current blockade. That's the thing that's driving the the starvation and the, and the disease because really there's an air, land and sea blockade of the country to, in, in the name of trying to remove these so-called Houthi rebels, which of course 
the U.S. has linked to destabilization, a threat to the region, but in reality, it's the, the Houthi group, really Ansarala, which has been fighting the al-Qaeda groups, which are the genuine regional threat in the region, which, as we know, are the main sponsors have been the Saudis. Well, how did they get that UN resolution up? They got it up unanimously. No one opposed it, not Russia, not China, not anyone else, really, Why? because I, I think back at that time, this was beginning in, say, 2014, when the Ansarallah-led coalition took the capital in 2014-2015, they got it up because I think no one recognised then the extent of the revolution and how far it had permeated through Yemeni society, basically. And they were distracted by the fact that there was a an initiative from the Persian Gulf Arab monarchies to try and repartition the country, a so-called peace plan, but led by Qatar and some of the others, um, and the Saudis, basically, who had their own strategic interests on the, on the Arabian Peninsula, basically. So no one was really paying attention, unlike with Syria, where the, the Russians and the Chinese put a veto against any sort of intervention against the Syrian government, because Syria was an established state with alliances and so on. But because there was an actual revolution going on in Yemen, then the Ansarallah party was not recognised for what it was at the time. And what support are they getting from countries like Iran? The U.S. has accused them of being some sort of puppet of Iran, which is quite false because, as I said, it's a genuine indigenous revolution which draws on Zaidi revivalism. It's a it's another Muslim sect, basically, which shares some things with Shia Islam in the sense of revolt against uh, an unjust rule, but it's different in its um, theology. It's not based on a hereditary line of imams as the, the Shia have it, basically. So... They've only really got moral support, let's say, support with the Iranian media and so on, since they came to power in about 2015. There's not really substantial material support going there. Most of the the arms of the revolutionary government there are arms that they've had or arms that they've captured or arms that they manufacture. They have a big business in manufacturing rockets, for example, and drones. And probably they've done a fair degree of reverse engineering, perhaps with some Iranian designs. They've probably had some trainers, uh, advisors from, from Hezbollah, for example, but which supports them morally also. But really it's a, it's a genuine indigenous revolution. What about relations with Ethiopia and maybe Eritrea, Somalia, across the, the waters? Well, there's strategic links there, but of course, the U, as you may know, the US is very well embedded in fomenting conflict on the Horn of Africa, because the Horn of Africa is the other strategic area that the US, through its AFRICOM uh, extension, the Pentagon claims to control the world through various commands, you know, Southern Command, Central Command, which is most of the Middle East, plus Egypt, and then AFRICOM, which is, relates to the Horn of Africa. So the US has a, a military presence over there. The Israelis also have a, a military presence on the Horn of Africa, and the Emiratis. So Yemen itself is isolated, basically, these days. You just wonder how it has survived all those years. As you say, it's isolated. How has it happened, the survival from the isolation? Well, it's been extremely difficult. They depend to a large extent on some external aid coming in because, first of all, the South, the Emirati-backed group in Arden, they transferred the central bank to Arden and then stopped paying all the salaries of all the public servants. Then they blockaded Hodeida Port. Hodeida Port is the one that still has access to the capital and the majority of the population there. They blockaded that port. And there are some UN protocols about 
ships going in there. They're trying to block the, the possibility of arms going in, additional arms going in there. But that's also blocked grain and food and medicines, other things like that, and they've blocked the, the airport too. There's only very few flights now going to Sana'a and they're reserved for Yemeni people and they're monitored. For example, the flights going to Amman in Jordan are monitored by the, the Jordanians who work with the Israelis and so on. So there's a there's a serious land, sea and air blockade. There's no easy way to access or visit, for example, uh, the majority of the Yemeni population. And, of course, in situations like this, it's always the, the local people, the population of who suffer the most? Yes, um, there's been like serious cholera outbreaks and, and other sorts of disease. Of course, the problem is that when you talk about uh, children dying, for example, you know, there's, there are these iconic pictures of starving Yemeni children, which reminds me of the pictures of starving Biafran children back in the 60s and 70s. You know, the danger to children is a combination of malnutrition and opportunistic disease, there's the problem. And you've got both of those things at work in, in Yemen. And that's why it's been called the worst humanitarian disaster in the world. So the starvation is a serious problem, which is linked with disease, is extremely dangerous. And so many, many have died already. The, the peace talks in recent years have seemed to have brought a pause, at least, to the, the air attacks because the Saudis were using U.S. equipment to attack the, um, the main populated areas in the capital from the air, you know, bombing schools and so on. There's lots of horrific stories about that. But even with that stopping, the blockade is, is extremely dangerous there, basically. Of course, the Yemenis themselves, they do have a rich land and a capacity to grow food and to manufacture things that they need, basically. But the, um, at the moment, they're under such pressure that they depend on some shipments, for example, fuel coming into Hodeida, and those have been, uh, are still under blockade. Although, just to update that briefly, the Chinese initiative in bringing Iran and the Saudis together has also led to a renewal of the peace talks, which had stalled basically between Yemen and the Saudis. And the Saudis have had their representative for the first time in the capital, in Sana'a, just recently. There's no actual concrete breakthroughs yet but there is a promise because the Saudis they were losing militarily and there was a risk and maybe there still is a risk of the Yemenis actually taking over some of Saudi territory on the Arabian Peninsula because there are historical disputes there of some territory that the Saudis have claimed for some time are historical claims by the Yemenis so they were at risk there. The Yemenis were sending drones into their oil facilities, they'd sent drones into the into, du, into Dubai as well, into the Emirates as well. The Saudi presence in Sana'a actually talking directly to the the National Salvation Government there is an important breakthrough and it remains to be seen anyway whether this will... But it seems there's some hope for the first time of some real breakthrough because the Saudis for their own part for some years have been trying to get out of the trap that they're in basically in the war because they... They were losing militarily and they needed some sort of resolution. But they would held on to most of the blockade. They'd allowed some flights in, I think, with the Chinese brokering relations there and uh, in particular to, you know, defuse the Iranian-Saudi rivalry, let's say, that introduces some more hope into the, into the situation of, of Yemen. And what's in it for China? China, of course, has its own ambitions, but they're at a different level to the U.S. The U.S. has been 
um, blundering in militarily and using proxy armies, vicious, bloody interventions in throughout the entire region. I mean, the US is driving the war in Yemen, make no mistake about it. The Yemenis themselves have written songs about it. They say, we know that our enemy is, is America, but they, they sing about this. You know, they know that while the Saudis appear to be the head of a coalition, it's really the US and Britain are involved directly in this war. And, that, and to create their own so-called New Middle East, Chinese, for their part, see opportunities for their Belt and Road Initiative through the entire region and the Horn of Africa and Yemen are part of that. And actually the Chinese have some historical links with Yemen going back to the 50s. They've been involved in infrastructure there uh, some time back. But of course all those transport links into the Red Sea through to the Horn of Africa and so on are part of the infrastructural project that the Saudis, that the Chinese are called uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. When things are Stable, of course. At the moment, the Chinese have been dealing with the the puppet administration the Saudis set up in exile. Most of the world until now has been calling the Yemeni government this exile puppet, um, Mansour Hadi, who's been living in hotels in Riyadh, for example, hasn't been in the country since 2015. The Chinese have been dealing with him also, like everyone else, but they're very pragmatic and they'll switch very quickly to the effective government in Yemen when things stabilise. And what's the interest for Britain at this moment? Well, Britain is is a NATO state, of course. NATO is really a coalition that the U.S. has put together. The U.S. dominates NATO. And so the NATO states have effectively been supporting the U.S., um, backing the U.S. leadership in in the entire region, you know, with the war on Iraq, with with the occupation of Afghanistan, with the war on Syria and the war in Yemen, because the U.S. wanted to dominate the region and, have as its lieutenants the Israelis and the Saudis. That was the original plan back in the earlier part of this century. But as we know, that's all been derailed to a large extent. And the regional players um, now, importantly, including Saudi Arabia, of course, not including Israel, but um, the Emiratis and others have have decided to normalise with Syria and some other players like Oman have helped broker that. But now China and Iran have played important brokering roles there too. So the British and the other NATO players, France and Germany, for example, are, are really, like with Ukraine, really, they've been dependent on the US leadership. And if the US leadership starts to fail, they're left to chart their own course there. Although it's true, as you say, that, that Britain has a historical link with Yemen, a historical colonial link there. It doesn't help them because they've been very deeply involved in the war against Yemen. They've been special forces, British special forces in the south. Uh, working with the Emiratis, for example, you know, fighting the the actual effective government of Yemen. So the the Yemenis are very well aware of the British role. I'd imagine that the powers that be in Israel aren't too happy about the situation at the moment. No, of course they're not happy with the fact that China has brokered a um, a peace deal between Iran and the Saudis because the Saudis behind the scenes have been collaborating with Israel for some time, although they haven't formally normalised like the Emirates and, and Bahrain did, for example, but uh, and Morocco. But um, no, the, the Israelis are feeling besieged by this. Plus, there's a additional tension between the Biden administration and Netanyahu regime because Netanyahu claims that uh, the Biden administration is, wants to carry out some sort of colour revolution against him because really the the US Zionists and the US administration support the liberal faction of Zionists rather than the openly fascist faction of Zionists because the Netanyahu aligned groups are really an embarrassment to 
international Zionist, international Jewish community too. Can you talk for a few moments about Palestine and the latest uprising, I suppose you could say, it against the occupation? Where do you see it going? Quite a critical time, I believe, because you've got, on the one hand, a greater coordination of resistance forces in Palestine and around Palestine. Remember the regional support for Palestinian resistance. That means the Palestinian armed resistance and as well as every other form of resistance. It's very important. There's much greater cohesion now between the resistance factions in Palestine and between Iran, Syria, Lebanon, for example. Um, the, the reconciliation between Hamas and Syria was an important element of that, even though the Syrians don't trust Hamas because of their Muslim Brotherhood links. But nevertheless, there's greater cohesion amongst the resistance factions at a time when you have greater divisions within the Zionist groups. There's a reaction by the political opposition amongst the Israelis to Netanyahu getting back into power and trying to cripple the courts at a time when Netanyahu himself is facing imprisonment on corruption charges. That's really an important part of the root of this so-called judicial reform. It's, it's putting the judges under control of the executive. And that's a cause for a lot of the opposition within the Israeli camp, basically, even though some of them from time to time, like a former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, was trying to link it to the crimes committed against some of the Palestinian villages, you know, that village, Tuwara, which was effectively burnt to the ground by Zionists and some of the extremists in the Netanyahu coalition were crowing about it and boasting about it, basically. So they have their own conflicts within amongst themselves. And in that conflict, the Biden administration, let's say the, the, the liberal side of US imperialism, tends to support that liberal side of Zionism because it's it looks better for PR purposes. So there are serious divisions within the Israeli camp, basically at a time when there's greater cohesion amongst the resistance forces. And there have been a number of resistance attacks on the Israelis and then, of course, reprisal and punishments as a result of those attacks there. What's up in the air, what's not yet revealed is to what extent the regional resistance, in particular Iran, might respond, given that the Israelis keep making attacks on Iranian and Syrian forces and keep threatening Iran. There were some attacks recently from South Lebanon too, so that's another source of possible conflict. The Palestinian resistance factions hosted by Hezbollah in South Lebanon are also engaging in some of the attacks on the Israeli bases. Do you believe they're also influenced by those serious divisions within Israel itself? Yes, certainly. They'll look at those weaknesses and the Israelis are aware of that. Resistance forces will look at those divisions and try and exploit them, of course. That's what the other side does, isn't it? It's what the US and the Israelis always do. The Israelis have always tried to play on the division amongst the Palestinian factions. That's why many of the Palestinians don't like the sectarian groups within the resistance because they foment that sort of sectarianism and weakness, basically. But to some extent, as I said, that's been overcome in recent times, and Iran's been the major force in doing that. Iran is really the leading force in supporting the Palestinian resistance, and their policy is we support all the factions of the resistance, and they can work out amongst themselves how they work together and how they develop their political solutions. And that support coming from southern Lebanon, which in turn is influenced by Iran? Yes, that also, and also from Syria too. And Syria has the same policy, foreign policy, effectively towards Palestine. That is to say, we support 
all of the Palestinian factions, all of the resistance factions, and now that Hamas is back in Damascus again and that consistency between the Iranian and Syrian positions is, has been restored. Whereas if you look at the other so-called supporters of Palestine around the world, they will say, oh, well, we host and we have relations with the Palestinian Authority regarding the Palestinian Authority as a proxy for the Palestinian people, which is something that's not really accepted by the Iranians and the Syrians. They say we'll support all of the resistance factions and they can work out their, their political solutions. And we have to acknowledge that the vast numbers of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and also Syria and Jordan as well, what line are they taking? There are a lot of Palestinians in Jordan, of course, um, but the Jordanian monarchy has historically collaborated with the Israelis. They are seen in a different camp to the Lebanese resistance, Syria and Iran, for example. The, the, the Jordanians collaborate with Mossad in many respects to contain and control and at times arrest Palestinian activists who often have to travel in and out of Palestine through Jordan. It's a very different situation to the so-called axis of resistance countries which support the resistance. Is what's happening in Palestine now the third intifada or is it more than that? It's like a third intifada, you're right, in that, in that sense that intifada was a popular uprising. It's not about some formal political situation. I, I refer to the Palestinian Authority in the way I do because really it's seen as itself is seen as collaborating with Israelis. It, it functions as a type of local government within the Israeli entity, basically. It doesn't control anything. It doesn't control the economy. It doesn't control the borders. They have a pretense of sort of, of monitoring the borders, but really the entire boundary and economy and all the, the critical strategic matters within occupied Palestine are controlled by the Israelis and have been for, for quite some time now. So the, the Palestinian Authority is really pretty much a dead letter in terms of any political progress there. In terms of the refugees, since you mentioned it, um, I'm reminded just recently that um, there have been some secret deals between the Palestinian Authority negotiators and the future of the return of refugees, and it's extremely limited. They're talking about a few thousand each year for five or ten years, something like that, where you've got, as you said, millions of refugees in the region and around the world, basically, who still are claiming their right of return. The right of return is a very important element in, in the Palestinian struggle. And it's not even addressed by the dismantling of apartheid. As the, the UN rapporteur on this, Francesca Albanese, said recently, even if tomorrow they give citizenship, equal citizenship, to everyone living in occupied Palestine, in historic Palestine, it doesn't resolve the question of war crimes, land theft, and the refugees. So those things, the land in particular and the refugees, are things that are, in a sense, independent of and in addition to the question of apartheid or the denial of full citizenship to Palestinians. And, of course, it's coming up to the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. There's a series of commemorations within Palestine which are always events for tremendous mobilisation and more recently it's been mobilisation around to protect the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, in Al-Quds as they call it, the anniversary of the of the Nakba, of the catastrophe of, of 1948 when there was really a peak of ethnic cleansing and, and massacres is going to be another focus for mobilisation, will involve more resistance activities. When I say resistance activities I mean you don't see it in the Western media but every day there are 
armed attacks on the Israelis, sniping, these sorts of things, low-level things often, and then Israeli reprisals. Basically, this is going on regularly in, in, at the low-level type of war that's happening there. So those things are magnified when you have an event of large-scale mobilization when everyone comes out there. So with the, these anniversaries all a focal point for, for an, an enhancement of resistance activity and, and then followed by Israeli reprisals because really the language of the, the current regime led by Netanyahu is such that they really are saying quite openly they want to destroy the Palestinian population, including the, the women and children, everything, because they see them all as terrorists opposed to their political project. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.